I don't know if you saw that program over Christmas. Uh, do you see that with uh, uh, Barack Obama and uh, Bear Grylls? It was a, a great program. If you haven't seen it, do uh, download it. Look at it on iTunes or I, no, what is it, iPlayer and all that kind of stuff. But basically, the two guys were at uh, a glacier in, in Alaska that receded a lot because of global warming. That was the topic of much of the conversation. But as the, uh, the, the program ended, it, it moved towards their faith. And it was very interesting. Bear shared, Bear Grylls shared that he trusted in Jesus but he made this really fascinating comment that I also heard on TV over Christmas. It was from Ella MacArthur, you know, the lady who sails single-handedly around the world. And Bear Grylls made this comment. He said to Barack Obama, he said, there are no atheists in the Southern Ocean. And by that he meant that the size and the scariness, the relentless power of the waves in the Southern Ocean draws every person that has sailed those oceans to pray. And to believe that there is more. Ellen MacArthur was on the question of sport, I think it was, uh, just a, a couple of days later. And she was asked, because in, in her biography, the Southern Oceans con- consumes most of the book. Because she writes in there that she spent days just weeping, crying her eyes out, not sure what to do. And all she could do was pray. And she would whimper again and again and again, just save me. It's interesting, just reading about uh, prayer this week. It's, often we pray in times of it, it struggle, don't we? Many people do. When a force of nature is overwhelming, whether it is an enormous wave, and I doubt that would be true for many of us, but it could just be the growing malignancy of a cancer. Uh, whatever it is, people pray, don't they? When they feel overwhelmed. And it's interesting, as I look through this this week, even atheists pray. Statistics show that the majority of atheists pray regularly. Even, it is said, statistics show that 9% of atheists pray every day. They pray to nothing. Uh, They are in dark about what to do. But they do pray. Why do people pray in those times of struggle, though? Many admit because it's... It's those times we feel incredibly vulnerable, we're exposed. Those times we can't buy our way out of the situation. However we sweet talk the situation, we can't get ourselves out of it, can we? We can't change our circumstances often. And so we, in desperation, look elsewhere. And that is why so many people pray. But prayer exposes us, doesn't it? It reveals what we believe, what our priorities are. As I said, Ellen MacArthur in the Southern Ocean, she she could just simply whimper, save me. She didn't know who she was talking to. But what did it expose? It exposed her her desire for life. Uh, It showed her lack of understanding about who had the power over her life. But prayer does that, doesn't it? I don't know if you've noticed that. It it does expose us, doesn't it? Prayer is probably the most theological, that is the most God-centred thing that any of us do. But why? Well, it is because every prayer, every thought of prayer, every word that you utter in prayer reveals to us and it reveals to God what you believe. It exposes you, the desires of your heart. But as Jesus will very practically show us, it is possible to pray in a right way 
And it's possible to pray in a wrong way. Prayer is a kingdom of God activity and the king is about to show us how to pray. The Sermon on the Mount, this amazing sermon that we've been looking at over now a number of weeks, Matthew chapter 5 through to 7, has been really, part of it is focused on the kingdom of God. Kingdom attitudes, that's what we looked at very much in chapter 5. And now we get to chapter 6, we're looking at kingdom acts. We looked at giving to the needy last week. And there Jesus exposed, didn't he, uh, uh, that a kingdom of God person, a Christian, the one who's been saved for the kingdom by trusting in the righteous life and the substitutionary death and the life-giving resurrection of Jesus, that Christian, that person of the kingdom of God, though not perfect, will long to honour Jesus by giving more to the needy. That's what we saw last week. Now, not to show off like the hypocrites do. Hey, look about how much I'm giving. Aren't I a great person? No. But solely to glorify God, who's given them everything. Jesus clearly showed that. It's possible to give in a right manner and to give in an inappropriate manner. And the same he's going to show, the same parallel he shows for prayer, and we'll see next week also for fasting. Prayer, you see, must be, as we begin to look at it, must be grounded in a right understanding. Which is why Jesus begins, look at verse through verse 5 to 8. He says, do not pray like the hypocrites. It's there on your outline, I put your first point there. Do not pray like the hypocrites, he says. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that Jesus begins by firstly showing Christians how not to pray. Do you see the implication? If we're not taught how to pray, Jesus is saying, look, by instinct, you're going to get it wrong. And if you think that is a very patronising low view of humanity, think about all the instructions that God has given to his people about how to worship him. Go back to the Old Testament. Think about all the instructions for the tabernacle, for the temple. Now, we might argue and come back to you and say, look, we're creative beings. We're made in the image of God. We love to be creative. We love to make up things. But on the subject of worship, we simply are told what to do. And we're called to obey. Fundamentally, you see, in our worship, it's not about what we feel that we can create and make up. No. What we experience, what we devise is very, very secondary. It's simply about how you can obey. We're to worship the Lord our God, John says, in spirit and in truth. That is with his help, following his way. And God makes it clear how we're to worship it, and in that, how we are to pray. Jesus makes that very clear here. So Jesus now begins on this subject of prayer like this. Pray like this, he says. It's very practical, isn't it? Now again, if you think that sounds a bit too patronising, consider again the disciples. If you were to go to the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel, that's Luke 11, you can have a look at it later on if you want. Look at Luke 11 verse 1. A disciple approaches Jesus and says, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples to pray. See, if we're not taught how to pray, we would pray in a wrong way. Looking back, just think of yourselves. I wonder, how have you prayed? 
How do you pray? Well, the first warning comes from Jesus. Don't pray like the hypocrites. So the implication there is there is real praying and there is hypocritical praying. Let's look at these hypocrites for a moment if we can. Look at verse 5. And we see they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. They love to pray. No question about that. Not because they love God and they love praying to him. But because they love to pray because they just love to to be seen to pray. To parade themselves before others as they pray. Oh, they may be very disciplined. And discipline's a wonderful thing in prayer. Daniel prays three times a day, we read. But behind their piety, behind the, the act of their prayer, lurks a very horrible stench of pride, doesn't there? They got the applause we see, that is, they got their reward, that's their reward. But it was for them. It's not for God, is it? Now, that may not be you. You're not, you might have excluded yourself. You think, well, I don't go out onto the street corner of the place I work or, you know, into the square. That's why we, we live in London when we talk squares, don't we? I don't go into the middle of a square and sort of start praying and everyone sees me. That's not me. But think a bit about the broader application. It's possible to go to church for very, very wrong reasons. To be seen. It's very possible to pray for the wrong <laughs> reasons. We can so easily degrade our service of God in response to the eternity that he has bought us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can so easily degrade our service of our gracious saviour into self-service, into self-promotion. It becomes all about me, all about you. So practically, how should we pray? Look down at verse 6. There's some very helpful kind of practical help here from Jesus. When you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who's unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What's he saying there? He said, when you pray, why don't you you just get away from, from the distractions? But also so that you're away from the eyes of others. So it's, it's just you and God. That's helpful, isn't it, for you? And it's helpful for them too. It's interesting that, just think broadly about that. Isn't it interesting how the situation helps us to obey the command? Isn't that so true in so many areas of life? It leads to the reward, the satisfaction that you have been with God and he loves to hear you. Also, don't babble, verse 7. Rather, listen to what Jesus will teach doesn't impress him just because you can string up prayers for, for five hours. Listen and obey. Now all this doesn't mean that we never ought to pray in public. Don't take this in a kind of a pharisaical way. I'm going to literally apply it to everything. No, we can pray. I mean, it wasn't wrong for Ash to pray at the beginning because he prayed in public. Jesus is specifically speaking here about our private prayer. But Jesus' point from the beginning of chapter 6 has been been clear, hasn't it, for us. Christians, if you're a Christian here today, whether it's your prayer or whether it's your giving to the needy, do it out of genuine love for God or genuine love for the needy. 
We never are to use any of those acts of faith, living out our faith, as an opportunity for self-love, for showing off and making ourselves known. So Jesus continues, look at verse 9 and verse 10. We get to our second point here and our main point today. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is how you should pray. If uh, Jesus' rebuke in the previous verses exposed that kind of very immature, horizontally obsessed prayers of so many, maybe even us, he teaches and encourages us now how to pray. Obsessed not with ourselves and the horizontal, but now with the vertical, that we might glorify God and please him. Again, have a, have a brief think for a moment about your own prayer life. Think about frequency. Think about content, maybe the subject, the need. I've done this myself this week and I began, and I guess like some of us here, to realise that I often begin praying about me. I kind of, the middle area of my prayers is about me and it kind of veers towards the end to be about me as well. And it's pretty much me most of the way. And I wonder whether you justify it like I did at the beginning of the week before I suddenly realised how awful I was. I mean, I, I began thinking, yeah, well, I, I'm so needy. I have so many needs before God. I mean, have you not looked at my life? I feel weak. I feel helpless. I, I need God's help in so many areas of my life. Surely prayer should be, be all about me. But is that how we should start our prayers? Oh, if, if you're like me, you've probably been taught from a very young age, well, of course, you, you begin your prayers acknowledging who God is, don't you? You say, dear God, or Heavenly Father, or Lord God, or whatever your pick is, you know, and, and you, you go from there. So that surely is kind of like ticking one box, you're kind of there, but then how quickly do you launch into you? There's nothing wrong with any of those beginnings, by the way, so don't go away and go, ooh, what do I say? I'll say, don't worry, don't panic, it's okay. But how often do you linger on God before you turn to your own shopping lists of requests? So what do we focus on first in prayer? Maybe, again, we should think, and I, I think this is, a, in a sense, a legitimate thing to, to think. How often do you think about maybe just your, your own sin, your own rebellion before God? Maybe I should turn to that first in my prayers. I need God's forgiveness after all. Do we start with that? It's interesting, isn't it? No. That's made even more clear with the complete absence of the first person. Notice Jesus doesn't teach us to begin our prayers, my Father in heaven. There's nothing about you, individually you, at the beginning and the middle of the Lord's Prayer. It's very much focused on him. Jesus lovingly and clearly shows us we're to begin our prayers saying, Ah, Father. It's about God. Us together with God. Let's look at that phrase, our Father, to begin with, if we can. Because Jesus here is showing that the, the autonomous self is not the fundamental way that we should understand ourselves. One scholar put it this way, it's not the fundamental unit of meaning for the Christian. In the self-obsessed culture in which we live, 
This has to come as quite a gentle rebuke, I think. Prayer doesn't begin with us singular in any way. And the first problem I face when I come to prayer is to remember that this is primarily not about me. Remember also that to be a Christian and part of the church, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we must first and foremost remember that we are a we. We're together now. Not a group of separate individuals, but a church united in Christ, saved by Christ, to bring glory to Christ. When we pray, we begin, Ah, Father. Because what does that do? It reorientates your heart and your mind against the norm of a self-obsessed culture. It also helps us to refer to God in terms of the relationship that he has established. He's Abba in the original. He's Father. It's the first word of the sentence. And it shows that that is the primary thing that we think of when we first begin to pray, of the fatherhood of God. But is that, as you may have been taught as a, in Sunday school and so on, is God being our Father, just him being that kind, kind of benevolent daddy figure? He is, but he's so much more. You can't undermine or trivialise the, the, the nature of the fatherhood of God. We can only pray to God as Father because the Divine Son, the Lord Jesus, has opened up the way through that atoning work on the cross. That cleansing, relationship-restoring sacrifice of his life. You've got to get the idea that as we begin to pray and say, Our Father, this is so intimate, it is so personal. But also, the fatherhood of God must speak of the authority of God. His full authority as Father over his children. Because as as Christians, we are the adopted children of God, being able to address The creator God as father can only be understood through the adoption that Jesus Christ has won for us and established for us through his saving work on the cross. Romans 8.15, for example, you look it up later, shows that we've received through Christ's work on the cross the spirit of adoption. So we have this enormous privilege to pray to the creator and sustainer and author of salvation through the one who purchased salvation. With his own blood. And now we are commanded to come before our Heavenly Father with words that essentially they're littered. All this points to the immeasurable grace of God. We can call him Father. Do you see how much he has done to establish even the opportunity that we can call him Father? We cannot say, My Father. Because that would isolate us. We are able to pray whether we are on our own a million miles from everyone else. Wherever we are in this world, we can pray rightly, our Father. And remember that we are not alone in any way. As Christians, we are the adopted children of God living in the family of God. 
Basically, we have everything we need. And this introduction, our Father, should remind us of that again and again. We're going to move on, but a little aside, a little canopy before we go to the second course, if you like. Um, have you noticed that we are taught by Jesus to introduce ourselves? Have you ever spotted that? We are to begin praying and say, hey, God, it's me again. Sorry it's been a little while. I'm here again. It's me. Let me tell you about my week. Here's a few requests as well. I don't know if you've ever prayed um, with children. Where my boys are, we're praying when they're younger. Um, what you used to get with a, with a child that's kind of you know, just beginning to pray, they would say, oh, God, uh, I went to school today. I played football in the playground. This is, this is always sort of the boys here. Yeah. I scored a really good goal. Top left-hand corner, and all the kids were amazing. They were, I did really well on my maths test. And, uh, oh, and thank you for everything. That's great. Amen. Lovely <laughs> game. As the boys got older, I used to ask them, do you think God knew you scored that goal? Do you think he knew the result of your test before you did the test? And they begin to work it out. Ephesians 1 tells us that God chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. We are known by God perfectly, even before we know ourselves, even before we were born. God knows. He knows you. He knows what you've done, he knows what you've thought, he knows what you've felt, seen, been inclined toward. God knows you. You don't have to introduce yourself, hi, it's me again. He knows you. Can you imagine if, if, your child, if you had children, or you know, got a niece or a nephew, and they came down every morning and said, hi, my name's uh, Andy, uh, I'm your son. Wouldn't that be a bit weird? Did you forget? Are you a goldfish? What's going on here? No. He knows you. You don't have to introduce yourself. For Christians, God is our adoptive, <coughs> eternal Father. He's in heaven. Second point there, he's in heaven. Why do you think it's so important to recognise this as we pray? One scholar put it this way, it's big words here, but I'll explain it afterwards. He said, God's transcendence, his bigness, his amazingness, his otherness, is made known by his residence. That is, we have the privilege to speak to the uncreated creator of the universe, saying, our Father, and saying, in heaven is really, really helpful, because it's a corrected to remind us of his epic nature, his grandeur, but also it reminds us of our lowly, finite weakness as well. He's in heaven, we're here. He's masked, we're not. He's the creator in heaven and we're just the creatures on this small little planet. He isn't a friend who, who you pop around to for a kind of a screwdriver to borrow a saucepan or something like that. He isn't the helpful mate you turn to. He's the source of all life. He's the creator God and he resides in heaven. <clears throat> Situating him helps us to remember that, doesn't it? And again, this, this phrase is really helpful when praying because it, it points us to Jesus as well because Jesus, who's fully God, who was in heaven, so lovingly and mercifully in his love came to bring life, to restore us to himself at the cost of himself. He came from heaven to earth so that we could join him in heaven. 
The interesting thing about as we look at the Lord's Prayer, if you recognise, it's not, it's not that much about you and me, is it, so far? That's really humbling, I found. Our Father in heaven, let's look at that little phrase again. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, we're literally being taught to pray here. God, may your name become holy. Hallowed, holy. See, our task as we pray is to hallow the name of God. We, we cannot add to God. There's no way, by the, what you pray, however good you think you are, uh, you can't suddenly make God more holy by your prayers. It doesn't work like that, does it? We're just creatures of the Creator. But we are to pray that by the way that we live, by the way that we work with our colleagues, by the way that we speak, think and pray, we will either subtract from the name of God or add to the name of God as known and observed around us. You can't change the holiness of God, but what people observe and understand of the holiness of God will be seen and and observed through you. Their understanding will come through you. We're to pray that God's name and reputation will be hallowed through us and through our prayers. How? Well, in our prayers, by acknowledging him as the Holy One, but also in our lives, our marriages, our workplaces and everywhere. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Fourthly, very quickly, your kingdom come and your will be done. Now, this is a parallel. A number of the phrases within the Lord's Prayer are parallels. And and this is very much parallel to that hallowing of the name of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And it can be interpreted, the kingdom come bit, in a number of ways, three main ways. People say, well, it must refer to the second coming of Christ when he returns to judge, ushering in the eternal kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, we pray. Some people think it refers to uh, helping make this world a better place, that the kingdom of God will be established more on this earth. Social action and so on like that. I guess to bring a taste of God's kingdom here and now. Your kingdom come, we pray. Thirdly, people would say, well, it's only to be seen spiritually. That we personally come closer to Christ. That his kingdom attitudes and his kingdom acts will be more manifest in all of our lives. Your kingdom come, we pray. Well, I think I agree with, I think probably the most of the scholars, and I think it's probably all three to a degree. There's an emphasis toward the future and the tense is used, but as with the first petition, that is to hallow the name of God, the emphasis, once again, is all the glory of God. It's all about him. God's name in the hallowing, God's rule in the kingdom, and God's will, your will be done. It's all about him and his glory. Better put, we say, our Heavenly Father's name, our Heavenly Father's rule over our lives, our Heavenly Father's will for our lives as expressed through His living and active word. It's all about God and His glory. So we pray to our Heavenly Father that His kingdom will come. He's the King. He's the royal ruler above all. And in praying that His kingdom will come, we are praying that His kingdom will grow through our witness and that it would come eternally in Christ's final return. We're to pray that his will would be done in our lives, that we wouldn't resist, 
We wouldn't say no to his loving, kind, benevolent rules through his word, the Bible, and through his help of the Spirit. Of course, as we do that, that would hallow God. You see how they're linked? And we pray that our lives on earth now would become more and more like our heavenly perfected lives on earth as it is in heaven, which again would hallow the name of God. So this then is how we should begin our prayers, Jesus instructs. Does that mean that if you get yourself in a pickle this week and you're going... Right, do I have to really go through all of this before I get to, dear God, please help me in this situation? No, it doesn't mean that. Try not to be the Pharisee again. But Jesus does warn us, doesn't he? Don't be the hypocrite. Don't pray to kind of look good and to feed your own ego and self-worth. Rather pray whenever you can. As often as possible by beginning and recognising that God is your Father. Our Father. Recall what that means as you begin your prayers. Remember its beauty. Remember the depth of the fatherhood of God and what it means for you now, today, tomorrow, in the workplace, with relationship. What does the fatherhood of God mean to you? Pray that in this day his name would be hallowed in and through you. Use this prayer, I guess, as a framework, a guide to your prayers, a model to refine your prayers. And I think if you do, I think you'll be amazed. I think you'll be humbled. And I would dare to say even excited. It's hard sometimes to get quite excited about prayer, isn't it? I think all of us, if I were to put our hands up, would say, we all find it difficult at times, is that right? But I would encourage you to... I think you can get really excited about prayer because as you begin to pray with this framework that Jesus has taught us, you'll begin to liberate yourself from the self-obsessed world that we live in. Let me finish with this. Did you see the Golden Globes this week, Uh, the introduction? Um, Did you see the Jim Carrey? Uh, Jim Carrey, I don't know how you pronounce his name. He introduced uh, uh, the giving out of one of these Golden Globes. Golden Globes are kind of like... There are awards, aren't they, for film actors and so on. There he did, he came out, and uh, it was hilarious, what he said. It was only two minutes long, but it was also very, very knowing. Now, the context is that Jim Carrey, he's won two Golden Globes already. And he came out uh, with a big smile on his face and jokingly said that he dreamed, uh, a big dream, always to have three Golden Globes. And he said with a big smile on his face, saying that if he had three golden globes, I quote, then I would be enough. Then I could stop this terrible search for what I know will ultimately not fulfill me. It's very interesting that all of the, uh, the crowd, all of these actors, amazingly wealthy people, were in hysterics. But it shouted loud, and it very, very clearly exposed their hearts. Why? Well, because if they pray, like so many who pray, they pray something like this. Maybe not literally, but this is what their lives will say. Hallowed be my name. May my kingdom come, grow, and my will be done. I'm Lord, I'm king, 
You're not going to tell me what to do, are you? Isn't that what people pray, think, believe of themselves? But as Jim Carrey said, it is a terrible search that I know will never ultimately fulfill me. So Jesus instructs, and I dare you to pray instead, Our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to pray that now. I hope, in a sense, we'll, we'll see some of what we've learned this week and we'll learn more next week. But I, I guess we can pray it a little more knowingly now. If you'd like to turn to your sheets, why don't we have a, a moment of quiet to begin with, to reflect, maybe just to, we sometimes say just to pray and just to, to thank God for what we've been learning, maybe to think and pray through what you need to apply to your heart, to your prayer life. And then I will lead and we will pray together the words printed on the sheet of the Lord's Prayer.